Hello, I'm Sam Atkinson, president of CASIDA and member of CASIDA's executive board of directors. And it is my pleasure today to sit down with Scotty Rogers, the director of communications at the Goodyear Cotton Bowl Classic. Um, Scotty, so good to sit down with you and, and talk with you um, and, and welcome to Through My Lens. Well, Sam, thanks for doing this. I'm glad that we were able to sit down and have this conversation. I wanted to make to sit down with you to kind of talk about everything. We've been friends for a long time, so I want to, this is going to be a great conversation. Yeah, and as I say, this is an opportunity to get to know more about Scotty and his experiences from growing up to working in the SID field um, to where you are today, Scotty, and, and there in Dallas. Uh, and as you just alluded to, you know, you and I go way back, it's about 15 years or so, um, and you always bring so much positivity and high energy. Um, you are a true leader and a friend to all. So first question, I'd just be like, what makes you so high energy and, and ready to go every day, it seems like? You know, it's people. People make me so excited. You know, I, I, I'm a people person. I, I think I've drawn into that. You know, I don't know if I necessarily was that from, from going, growing up. I was always around uh, a lot of different people. I grew up in a household with, with two brothers and two sisters with my mom and dad. So it was a pretty big house from that standpoint. It wasn't a huge house in, in space wise, but it was, uh, we were, um, our parents were always around and, and we were always active with the various things that everybody was doing. Um, there's a four year age gap to me and my um, uh, sister um, that is closest to me in age. So it was, I was always kind of the little one following them around with all the things they were doing. But, uh, you know, I was able to carve my own way and, uh, you know, just fell into this world of sports, um, going back to, going back to high school and, uh, and then it just kind of blossomed from there. Now you grew up in Atmore, Alabama, right down there on the Florida border um, in Southern Alabama. Can you tell me a little bit more about your childhood and also kind of maybe highlight, you know, what was the best part of growing up where you did? You know, I grew up in a small town and, you know, I, I have a, an affinity for small town living. You know, my parents were, were not anybody, you know, my dad was a, a security guard at the carpet factory, retired Air Force. Uh, my mom was a homemaker for the most part. She, she did some things, but, you know, we had a, I would say a middle, middle class house. You know, we were always, there was, there was never anything that was an issue. My parents were very, um, I wouldn't say very strict, but they were very strong as it relates to how you needed to carry yourself and how you needed to treat other people. It was always with respect. It was always, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, no, sir, no, ma'am, you know, whether it's, whether it's them or any of the elders that you dealt with. So they, they instilled in us early on that having a quality lifestyle was, was really important. So my mom didn't play around. My dad was, he was, he was, he was a talker and I probably got a lot of that from him, but he was, he liked to, he was pretty stern at times, but he just really wanted you to do things a certain way. And my mom was always the one that's trying to help everybody, take care of everybody. She definitely uh, was, was great about that. You know, miss, miss them both every day. And uh, my two sisters still live in my hometown. I got two of my brothers that, uh, um, that I grew up with. And I got a third brother that, uh, that I knew uh, and, and was around when he came to visit, but uh, it was just a it was just a solid upbringing, you know. You know, we my high school one of the biggest things that got me going was that we were band was a big thing in my house. 
because my both of my sisters were in the flat core. Both of my brothers were drummers in the band. I ended up being a drummer in the band. So at an early age, that became something. And going to high school football games, I remember going to high school football games uh, in a small town. That's a big deal. And then, you know, obviously the band performances and even going to see them um, perform at, at contests and things like that. Now, you stayed in state for college and you went to University of Alabama. Was that an easy decision for you? And, and how were those years um, for you in Tuscaloosa? Formative. It was it was unbelievable. I you know I I grew up an Alabama fan. I never thought that I would get the opportunity to go to school there. Um, uh, when I applied uh, in my junior year, you know when you can finally apply and, and put all your information in, I got in. I was like that, that's where I'm going, and I, I really went there honestly to potentially join the band, join the Million Band. That was something that was. I was going to do. I started writing for my hometown paper, writing sports, my senior year of high school. And uh, I actually was going to be in the band and go to school for math and science. But somehow or another, I started working in sports information and majored in journalism and minor in history. So I don't know. It just kind of all happened. It all flowed from high school and having a great experience working on our on our student paper uh, at the high school. And that turned in uh, writing for the, the Atmore Advance, which is one of the papers in town. It only came out twice a week on Wednesdays and Sundays. So I had, there was like one page for sports. So I, I learned a lot of things about writing and just the process of doing that. And it just turned into when I decided to um, declare my major officially in Alabama, um, I had done a minority journalism workshop. They call it something else now, but uh, the summer before my uh, freshman year, and I went there for two weeks. It's basically journalism camp, for lack of a better term. And it was a great two-week experience. And I got very, very lucky. Uh, I ended up winning best story and best layout design. And I guess I realized at that point, maybe majoring in journalism might be the way for me to go. And that's what I did. And everything just kind of went from there. Yeah, you know, let's go from there. You know, you graduate from the University of Alabama and you start working with the SEC um, in the Southeastern Conference. How did you get into that? And, and how did that kind of help uh, propel you um, onto your career path? Yeah, my time in Tuscaloosa was really the, the foundation of everything. I spent uh, three years in the athletic communications office as a student assistant. And just through being able to work conference championships, uh, whether it was ones that we were hosting in Tuscaloosa or football championship game, basketball tournament. Um, and really it was the 95 regional that the SEC was hosting in Birmingham. And I volunteered to help out at that doing typical things that you do. And I learned that they had an internship program and there was, a, there was one in media relations. So I applied for the internship and I just got really, really lucky and, and got the internship. And, and nine months into my internship at the time, Roy Kramer was the commissioner. And, um, you know, I was doing my intern job and all the sports that I was doing. And we had one of our full-time people, our assistant director, uh, ended up deciding that he was going to leave to take another job. And it was, you know, during the latter part of the year, it was right after he was doing women's basketball. And he his last official event was our men's basketball tournament. So the Monday after um, our tournament, which is the Monday after Selection Sunday, the commissioner uh, called me into the conference room and asked me if I wanted to be promoted to full time. Um, and I'm not even a year out of college and I accepted right there on the spot. He told me, you're the assistant director of media relations at the Southeastern Conference, go do the job. 
And I really just had to, it was like I had to turn on a switch at that point. I had to go from being young to, to, a, to a professional, like, at, at a, right. and he just, he saw something in me that I probably didn't even see. And, uh, and Charles Bloom was my boss at the time at, over the department. So between he and Charles, they saw something in me and I just had to, I had to jump into the role and, 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 and run from there because it was NCAA tournament time. So I had to right. jump into and ultimately it ended up being an all SEC final four of Tennessee and Georgia. And here I was three weeks in of doing the job. And here I am as the communications director for an all SEC national championship game for women's basketball. It was, it was an unbelievable start and it just kind of went from there. It always seems like that too. Like, you know, you're in the moment and you don't see your own greatness, but other people do. And I think that says a lot about you um, and what other people are, are, you know, they, they see that already at a young age for Scotty Rogers and then, um, what goes from there? It, you know, folks like, again, Roy Kramer, uh, Mark Whitworth, Charles Bloom. It was actually Mark Whitworth that hired me because I actually started two weeks before Charles at the, at the SEC, which was a unique thing um, And as he was coming into the role. And, and just Brad Davis, who's no longer with us. There was just Mark Womack. There were so many people there at that office that just gave me an opportunity. You know, and I look back on it, and I didn't even know it at the time. And you know, I look back on it and, and now I do know, you know, I was just the, the second African-American male to have a full-time job in media relations in the history of the SEC, Arthur Trish being the first who uh, spent, who was at LSU back in the 80s and spent a lot of time in pro sports in the Atlanta area. You know, it was, you know, I didn't know that at that time, but, you know, I, I got into the business and I quickly went to my first co-sided that first year in 96 in Boston and um, started meeting people and, you know, whether it was within our conference or just other people I got to know. And then over the next couple of years, uh, going to the convention and just being involved and got on the social committee, which kind of fit me and who I am. And um, it just really kind of started evolving from there and just started meeting people. And I had some really, really great opportunities at the SEC that really to this day, if I didn't get to do the things that they entrusted me to do there, I wouldn't be where I am right now. You've had such an accomplished career so far, Scotty, and you've been a true trailblazer in, in that regards. You were at the SEC office for five years. You then worked, went and worked at the NCAA for five years um, and then made stops at CBS Sports. You were at the Ivy Leagues for over eight years, uh, Tulane, the Sun Belt, and then now to the Cotton Bowl. Do you ever take a minute to look back and be like, you know, looking at your path and the same, wow, like, you know, all these different you know, areas that you've been a part of and, and how you've grown in, in that in that respect? You know, to be a small town kid and the fact that, you know, I, I look at a lot of my experiences, but, you know, I think about taking a job, going to Indianapolis, but then even going to a job that was in Manhattan. I, I just, that was just never something that was on my screen. It was never something I thought that I could even accomplish or be w wanting to do. Um, but the, the fact that I could do that, it was, it was uh, amazing. And then, you know, the, then the transition from there was difficult because got caught up in a corporate downsizing and had to, had to pivot because, you know, I was, I lost my job in the middle of February and, uh, and, you know, in college athletics, they're not hiring a lot of people in the middle of February. So, you know, I had to, uh, I had to do that, but then I was able to land the opportunity at the Ivy league. And that was, another transformative time because I was able to not only lead a communications 
department there, but I was able to expand into other areas. And, you know, Sam, I know you serve on a, on a, on a committee um, and then served as chair of your committee in, in Division Three as on the men's basketball committee. And I got to serve on the uh, D1 women's rowing committee. And okay. I got to tell you, Sam, for, for, for a black kid from a small town in Alabama who can't swim to be elected chair, though I didn't really get to serve, to be on the women's rowing committee, working in the Ivy League, and then, and then be elected chair of that committee. Like I could never have put that start to that point. Like right. no direct line to figure that out. And I don't even know how I did it to be totally honest, but you know, it, that was a great opportunity for me. It was, you know, I got there and did a number of different things while I was there, but that one in particular was just so outside of my box. Right. Um, but it was something that was presented to me and I felt like I needed to embrace it. And we were able to start a rowing championship for, for women's rowing there. And among the other things that we accomplished there, and it was just such a great experience. And I look back on it and I still got some great friends that we still text each other every now and again. And we talk about rowing and, and I, you know, it's a sport that I never thought I would get to know. And I've, I've, you know, grown an affinity and an appreciation for it. All right, let's dig a little deeper and, and, get, and really get to know you. What makes you feel accomplished? I know it's a simple question, but you know, this every day or just even long-term, what makes you feel accomplished? You know, it's affecting people in a positive way. I, I feel every day I try to wake up and do my job to the best ability. I've never been worried about the next job. I've never been worried about trying to climb a ladder of any type. I've never worried about trying to be a trailblazer, to be honest with you. I've just tried to every day get up and be the best person I can be, bring a positive energy, bring high energy, because when I bring high energy for me, I feel like I can be the most effective person as a professional, as a friend, as a colleague, um, as someone in the community that people can look at and say, hey, here's a guy that can help out. You know, I'm, I, I feel like I don't have a selfish bone. We all have some selfishness about us. Uh, I get that. But I do feel like that I try every day to help others. And in the last several years of my career, I feel like I've been trying to do that a lot more the things I've done, you know, involved with through COSIDA and things and some other aspects, you know, just some stuff that I did in my life and career that was away from work, you know, that, you know, makes me feel accomplished. You know, I look back on, you know, a random experience I had in my life when I lived in Indianapolis, I was able to start a networking group. We call it the Friday Lunch Club. And it was a lot of fun. And it was a citywide networking group. And it was a it was an idea that I took from something we did at the SEC and, and, and reshaped it. And it turned into something great in, in a five-year run in Indianapolis. Never had that in my plans to do. Never had that in, in something to do. Uh, but it was something that, that happened. And uh, it was a great experience. And I got some great memories from it and make, met, make some great people and friends that I, I still con are connected with to this day. So what, what motivates me is being good to people and hopefully you know, return people can, will be good to me. And, and we're in the people business, right? And you are such a friend to all. But when I checked your Facebook page, man, almost 2,400 friends. So <laughs> I know you have a lot of friends, but I have to ask, what is a relationship deal breaker for you when it comes to friendships? You know, not being authentic. You know, you, 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 
you know, everybody's got differences. You're going to have differences of opinions with friends. I don't have to agree with everything that you think as a friend. We may sit on the different side of the aisle on a lot of different things, but the bottom line is, are you authentic? And then also how you treat other people. If I get the sense that you're treating other people bad, now you may not treat me bad, but if I get a sense that you're treating somebody else bad, then right. there's something bad in your personality. And maybe I should probably not be as close to you or maybe Appreciate even friends it, yeah. with you. I, I, that's something that's really big to me because you know, not every person um, treat everybody treats everybody differently. But when you see that negativity expanding out to other people, at some point it's going to come back to you and it's probably not going to be very good. So when you see that, that's kind of a deal breaker to say, you know what, maybe I should back off being that person's friend or just, um, you know, just kind of create some more separation because that is, uh, that's tough for me and that's tough for me to forget. And I, I think it's tough too when you look at yourself, um, you know, in, in your friendships and relationships with everybody else. And then sometimes it's like you don't get the same uh, feeling from your own friends who you may not, you thought you may knew who they were, uh, but they're not. And I guess one question, I, it's always, I think it's good for self-assessment too. It's just like, what's like one thing that you think people misunderstand about you as, as, a, as a person? Like, you know, not a negativity, but just like how, you know, maybe people... Um, could maybe misunderstand you as a person? You know, I'm not a person that comes across very, like I'm very sensitive, but I do have a sensitive side as far as how being perceived. And, you know, one of the things I've said, I say a lot, you know, I manage my perception, not my reality. Because right. people in a lot of cases don't really care about what your reality is. They care, they do in many cases, get their perception of you. And that's what they talk about, share with others, and they don't actually know who you are. And I think sometimes in my life and in the profession, I've had situations that's happened where people made a decision or was, or saying something about me that was about my perception, but wasn't my reality. And some of that affected me in a negative way and I had to deal with it. But again, didn't, no one cared that I had to deal with it. They just cared that they were trying to make a point and really didn't come down and have a conversation with me or have a very good understanding. So that's something that I feel like, uh, you know, maybe that's misunderstood. You know, I, I, I take a lot in. Um, I'm not one to carry, you know, I, I do carry my, my emotions on my sleeve a little bit, but I also have learned to temper it because of the situations that I've been in, the situations that I've been in, especially professionally. You know, Sam, I've come into this business and I've met a lot of people, but when I was traveling a lot of places in this profession, I was in a lot of rooms and a lot of tables and a lot of places where there were a lot of people that didn't look like me. And I had to start realizing and understanding that in the situations, whether it was in um, you know, professional situations, personal situations. A lot of happen this happened through my time in Cosida. You know, I've sat in those rooms and, and the things that I've done. And, you know, I, I probably have uh, made some people uncomfortable sometimes with some of the stuff that I've been involved with. And we'll, we'll, we can talk about that a little bit too. But I've known that as I've gotten older, that when you are the only person or one of the few in the room, you got to have a different lens 
you got to look through, you're looking through stuff through a different lens and you got to look at the situation and the scene and, and assess it in a different way. And I, a lot of people don't realize that it's not something I talk about a lot or, mm -hmm. or, or, or make it into a big deal, but it's something that I've had to do for the better part of my career. And, and, and it seems like too, like that, that shouldn't be you having to look through that lens. It should be the other way around, in my opinion. And I, and I feel like, and I know you have, you know, your own personal experiences, but like we have an issue at the, in the sports information field and even just college athletics. And we see it with the coaching hires and the lack of diversity um, from the higher ups and administration, and but also in our own field. Absolutely. How, how can we fix this issue with the lack of diversity and representation? Well, you know, as you know, Sam, I personally decided that I can't be the one sitting around just talking about it. You know, when there was an opportunity back in the summer and the racial and social unrest that we were dealing with in the country and we were dealing with, and you and I both know, you know, our profession is, is not diverse at all, not nearly as diverse as it needs to be. And I, I knew at that point that we needed to do something as a profession and we needed people to get on board and we needed it at the highest level. And I, I had a conversation with, with, with Jessica Poole, who obviously you know very well, who's at Chicago State and is on the board, um, who's a great friend. And she and I approached, as you know, approached the board and said, look, we need to come up with an initiative and we need to make sure that it is behind the board. It is, it, the board is behind it. This is not, you know, our, our, her role and my role on the diversity and inclusion committee has been, um, I think we've done some great work as committee and that committee with the diverse skill set and diverse backgrounds of the people on it have done great work. But at that moment in time, it was time for the board to get behind something. And I kudos to you and everybody in the leadership and the staff um, with their support to get behind that initiative. And my thing is that I feel like at this point in my career is my time to step up and stand up and try to help make a difference. Talking, talk is cheap and we gotta get out of the talking. We gotta get out of doing and we've been doing some things since June, July. We've, we've been doing, you can see it. And I think it's important for people to see it. And it's not only important to see it from the people who look like me, but it's also important for people to see it from people who look like you. So, and, and our membership, um, I think that's really important. And projecting that out to the rest of college athletics and to the sports world. And I, I wanted to make sure that we, it wasn't just, a bunch of black folks in Cosida started making a big stink about something. I wanted it to be broader than that. And you have to step outside of yourself. You have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable and have some conversations. And you've been on some of those Zooms that we've been able to have. And I think it's really, you know, Jess and I were able to help get it started. And now Denise Thompson at the Big Sky is kind of taking the lead over the initiative while we've continued to support and doing some things that we're doing. And I think together, we're going to make a difference. And that's the biggest word, together. We can't do it. We can't just have the black folks in our profession. We just can't have folks that are white who want to do it. We have to do it together. And I think it's really, really important that we have done that. And we still got a long ways to go, but I don't want to discount what we've done because what we've done up to this point 
is a lot more than what we were doing. And it really felt like, you know, this, what happened this past summer was a pinnacle in society um, with people really becoming woke to the idea of the, of the change. And like you mentioned, like, you know, it's not just, you know, black and African-Americans wanting the change. The white people need to make a change too. I mean, you know, when, it, when it comes to hiring and, you know, diversifying um, a work or work group. And I guess, Scotty, like, what was your take on everything that was going on personally, you know, from your perception, you know, what happened in the summer? And it just feels different, you know, as far as how people have responded um, from the summer to now, and you're seeing more action. And, and, and I'm, I'm hopeful that, you know, we see change, um, not just in college athletics, but across, you know, the country and the world. I think when everybody saw the various instances, everybody goes back to George Floyd, but there was a number of different things that happened. Um, that one was probably the one that obviously continues to be the, the focal point or where people, the jump off point from where people go from. But I think being black, I think a lot of people, when they saw that, it hit them because they had their own version of something like that happening. Not that dramatic and, and tragic in somebody dying, but they've all had one incident or multiple incidents of the microaggressions that happened and it just hit everybody in a different way because it was so public i think it just woke up the whole country i think we were at a time where everybody was not so busy in their jobs was at home and just i think it was a i think there was a lot of series of things that happened i think if you know because of the pandemic and us being where we are and the way we were feeling at that time uh, and the combination of being at home. And we were all still busy at work, but we were still, we were able to probably be able to look at things a little differently because we wasn't so bogged down on everything, yeah, especially in sports. Slow down. It was slowed down a little bit. And, you know, I, I think about, I think about the combination of all that. And I just think it just hit everybody at the right time. You know, I haven't had any incident that comes anywhere close to anything like that happening. But I'll give you one incident that's minor and it's in, 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 but it, but it says something to our profession. I was at a first and second round uh, when I was at the Ivy League and I was there representing the conference. Harvard was there. Um, I went, I was helping out Harvard as the conference rep, went to the, the communications directors meeting that morning, um, came out of that meeting. Now I have on a credential that says my name with Harvard University on and I have on an Ivy League sweatshirt. And I had some person who's white came up to me and asked me about information about one of the schools that was there. And that school was an HBCU. And they came up to me to ask me about information about them simply because I was black. I had on an Ivy League shirt and a credential that said my name and Harvard University on but they didn't even take one second to look to see who I was representing. Just assume because I was one of, or the black guy in the communications meeting, I had to be from the HBCU. Now, luckily I knew the person uh, who I don't think was there, but I made some phone calls and helped resolve the issue or answer the question because that was, I felt like it was not only my job, as a communications person to help another communications friend. But 
it was my job as a black person to make sure to, that the school there who represents to represent itself well. So that was my job. And that's a minor story. You know, I'm not trying to equal that to anything, but I use that to put that into our athletic communications context. Right. I can't tell you that was the first time that that's happened. And I can't tell you that's the last time that's happened, but that was one incident that I remember. And I, I, I always go back on and tell a quick story on because I had that happen a lot in my career, whether at various places, not just at, at that job at that place. And those are the things that we have to correct. That was a that was a microaggression that probably wasn't meant to be negative. That person probably didn't didn't mean to be that way, but we needed to. We got to be better in that. And I think in this profession, we have to do better across the board. We have to find everybody has to help people who don't have the perspective that I do. Maybe it's you. Maybe it's a friend of yours. Hey, tell them to reach out to me. Let's have a conversation. Let me help you get the perspective. You can never sit in the shoes that I do, and I can never sit in your shoes. But if we have conversation and we have dialogue, we can have a better understanding so that the next time that happens to somebody else, I don't need me to correct that. I need the person standing next to me or next to that person who's white to correct that person so that it doesn't happen again. Recently, I was reading the White Fragility book, and you, I learned a lot about the white, you know, white privilege, and it's those assumptions and those experiences that you've experienced that, that like you mentioned, needs to stop and, and change. Um, and and I agree. I I think there are definitely better days ahead. I'm hopeful that we're we're going to see um, a change and and the look in and a diverse group that we work in. Um, and I just want to thank you, Scotty, for, for being a member of CASIDA's uh, Racial and Social Justice Initiative Working Group and helping us, um, you know, work towards CASIDA for change on that. It's something that uh, as we continue to get into it, Sam, I've, I've, uh, it's, it's something that, that, that speaks a lot to me. It's like this organization is in a sea of change. And we were already seeing it with what we were doing in diversity and inclusion which is gonna live on. We've already seen it with some of the change that's been made through the initiative and the conversations. The, the Cosida for Change um, page that we have on our site that is chock full of information and all the past webinars and, 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 and podcasts and books and terminology and things that people can go to as a starting point. It's not a be all end all, but it's a place. And I, again, I just think the folks that who don't look like me and don't look like us that are in the profession that are taking steps and a stand and time out of their schedule in their lives to make, to help make a difference. That's, that's where I see the difference coming in. And we got a long way to go and we need all levels of our profession. We need our veterans. We need our, our, our folks that are in the mid years of their career. And we need the young folks. We absolutely need the young people to be a part of this process. And we need it at all levels um, in all divisions, you know, and, and even to our friends across the board and our Canadian friends, we need everybody in our profession to get together. Cause I think we can continue to be a leader. We've done some things already so far, 
that I think that we're leading in, and I think we can continue to do so. Along those lines, and a couple more questions, um, talking about the you know a change as far as the organization, and recently with Casida announcing their new governance structure and uh, establishing different cabinets. Uh, you're a part of the Division One cabinet. Um, what do you think this governance structure um, is, is doing now and, and doing things right to, to have that representation from all the different groups um, and how that will impact the organization long-term? You know, especially from the D1 cabinet, our D1 space is, is vast. It's not, it's, it's a challenge to put our arms around and we've tried a couple of different ways previously to get our hands on it. And I think the cabinet from the D1 perspective is gonna allow the group of us that, is, that are on the cabinet to fan out to all, you know, via the conferences and then thus to the schools and, and figure out what's the common thread in division one that's the issues. And what I'm starting to find in some of the earlier conversations I have, there are some common threads, but there's some big differences too. Um, what someone is looking for who may be at the head of the department at a power five school may be very different than a person who's the number three assistant at a school that doesn't have football in division one. You know, so we need to figure out how we can integrate programming, integrate networking opportunities um, for division, for our division one membership specifically that meets the needs of those different types of individuals at the different places and stages in their career. And I think that's what I want to hope that we do as a part of being a part of the D1 cabinet so that we can put our folks in the best possible position to grow, whether that's staying within the strictly within the profession of athletic communications, or if that's moving into positions that will put them in position to be deeper into um, the senior administration to get into the senior associate, the deputy, and potentially the director of athletics chair, because we want, we should want our folks that came from our background to continue to elevate and get in those big chairs. The more, the more of our SID friends that we have in that chair, the more we're going to have advocates um, talking for us, about us, and supporting us at all stages and all levels. And that's what I wanna see from what we're gonna do uh, as a part of the cabinet and help the governance structure. And it's just gonna make the organization stronger. And that's where it's all about. It's about making the total organization stronger. And we need to do that by helping make the, uh, Division One stronger. Well, I wanna close out um, this interview, Scotty, with you just to get uh, some fun of a couple of questions here. I know how big of a Alabama fan you are, Roll Tide. Roll but tide. if you had to pick Paul Bryant or Nick Saban, who are you picking? You know what? I don't think there's any question right now. It's Nick Saban. What he's done at Alabama, what he's done to affect college football, what he's done to evolve. You know, you go back and look at the first team at Alabama that won the national championship. And this last team that won the national championship, the offense totally different. And he's done it with a carousel of coaching changes at coordinator positions. He's done it in a culture and a space that is a lot different. Um, he's done it in a culture and a space where the student athletes have a lot different needs 
then I mean, look, the bear will always be the bear. I, I think we got to stop trying to compare people to the bear. We got to put him off to the side that he's the man. You know, he just just let him be. But, you know, I think if you have to look at what he's what what Saban has done from the standpoint of, of winning in the in the age in which he's had to win and as often as he's done it and the way in which he's done it, you got to get compared. But, uh, you know, the Bears, the Bears. I got you on that. And then if you had to pick who would be the best Alabama football team or what, what years um, would you pick? Seems like this last year was pretty pretty diesel, but uh, who who would what what team is the best Alabama football team? You know that is a huge huge debate, and I will you know you go with the one that you that you remember the best, and I, I gotta go with the '92 team um, because that was the team that was my first year working. Gene Stallings and Gene Stallings. That was my first year working in athletic communications. I was sophomore in school, and uh, I was able to go to the game thanks to my boss Larry White. And I can tell, I, I tell people this story and it's a short one. I was able to be at the game. Everybody knows the game, the Alabama, Miami and Gino Toretta was the Heisman Trophy winner and Alabama had this vaunted defense and not so great offense, but, and they went there and they just shut them down. But the last eight minutes of that game, I stood on the sidelines at the Superdome and that was January 1st, 1993. And I remember when the game's over and you see that iconic image of Gene Stallings on the shoulders and I was standing in the background you can't really see me there's like a clip of it where you can see a little bit of my face like for an uber second and I'm looking up at the Superdome jumbotron and I'm like seeing myself and I just knew at that moment I was like okay I don't understand exactly what this whole profession about this is kind of cool so I think uh I think this might be it and I just remember I I, I think about that moment and then the fast forward all the years down the road to actually work for the Sunbelt, which offices in the Superdome. So they actually have a job that was in the Superdome, you know, all those years later um, was a unique kind of, uh, you know, uh, 360 in, in, a, in a way. Um, but it is, it's just, it's that 92 team is something um, that I, I won't forget. And those memories just going to some of those games and being in the press box, being at the first SEC championship game, and uh, and then being at that national championship, it's uh it's an experience that I, I, I probably won't ever be able to replicate because I'm not that young anymore. But uh, uh, fortunately, Alabama's had a lot of great teams. There you go. Everything's coming full circle, um, and, and it's great to see what you're doing currently with the, with the Cotton Year, uh, the Goodyear Cotton Bowl Classic, Scotty. Um, and just really want to thank you for your time today, uh, and for for sharing your story on this latest edition of Casitas Through My Lens. Uh, reminder to learn more about Casitas racial and social justice initiative and to listen to previous Through My Lens podcasts, head over to casita.com backslash through my lens. Scotty, thanks again so much for your time today. Sam, thanks for being here and thanks for this interview. And I really appreciate you and everything that you do. Take care.